0: Hello, listeners. Welcome back to EmigCast, your source for emergency medicine ideas, information, and inspiration for medical students. I'm Aaron Willie, a fourth year at Oregon Health and Sciences University, and on today's episode, we are going to be turning our focus back onto a clinical topic, status epilepticus. Those of you who listen regularly might recall some of our earlier clinical episodes where we focused on presentations which really characterize the specialty of emergency medicine, such as cardiac arrest or pulmonary embolism. I think today's topic is very much in the same realm. Status, as I'll refer to it from now on, can be a life-threatening emergency, frequently complicated by mixed acid-base disturbances, and has the potential for long-term neurocognitive or end-organ sequelae. One of the distinguishing features of this clinical topic, however, is its stark bimodal distribution with high incidence in the first decade of life, and again at ages greater than 60. For that reason, we are going to narrow our focus a bit, keeping in mind that many of the steps used to treat status are similar between these age groups, but the underlying causes may be vastly different. Joining me today, I am proud to introduce Dr. Juan Piantino. He is the Director of Inpatient Pediatric Neurology and the Co-Director of Pediatric Neurocritical Care at Becker Children's Hospital here in Portland, as well as a researcher who, among other topics, has been involved in the analysis of how emergency departments manage unprovoked seizures and status epilepticus in pediatric patients. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you. I expect that most of our listeners have a fairly good grasp on the concept of a seizure, abnormal neuronal activity in the brain. Is there a specific way you think about it as an epileptologist? Well, as an epileptologist, I think the thought
1: process when you start Evaluating a patient with seizures starts with uh, thinking about the seizure semiology. So, how does a seizure present? Um, what is the patient doing during a seizure uh, and after the seizure? The analysis of the semiology uh, is useful because that will lead you to elaborate your uh, differential diagnosis and think about the etiology. Um, And knowing the etiology will change or affect your management or your treatment. So I guess when I think about a seizure, uh, I think about it in terms of semiology,
0: etiology, and treatment. So so another thing that you may come uh, across is whether a seizure was provoked or unprovoked, whether it was triggered or kind of a reflex reaction. Uh, Could you talk about that? And what gives you the clues that one one of these events may be either provoked or unprovoked in a patient that's been undifferentiated?
1: Yeah, so the term provoked, unprovoked, primary, secondary seizure, or idiopathic, or structural, are, um, are quite vague um, in the literature. Um, when we think about a provoked seizure, we think about an acute event in a patient who did not have a predisposition to have seizures. And this acute event caused the seizure. For instance, um, a stroke in a child uh, or an infection, things like that. Um when you think about an unprovoked seizure, uh you think about epilepsy basically. And um there are no precipitant factors. Patient almost seizes sp- spontaneously, and in in that case you need to start thinking about a genetic cause uh or that put that patient at risk for unprovoked seizures.
0: Okay, so we've we've naturally made the transition between seizures, uh, you know, an, an isolated event, and now we're just starting to discuss epilepsy. So if we could go with that a little bit longer. So w- what is epilepsy? And uh, beyond that, how does one diagnose status epilepticus?
1: Yeah, so um, the definition of epilepsy is a disorder that puts patients at risk for unprovoked seizures. Um Epilepsy is diagnosed clinically as the presence of two or more unprovoked seizures separated by 24 hours apart. As you can see, uh, a patient with a provoked seizure does not necessarily uh, have epilepsy. Uh, The seizures must be unprovoked. There must be no precipitant cause. Status epilepticus is basically a seizure that goes for a prolonged period of time. Now, the definition, the classic definition of status epilepticus was a seizure that lasts longer than 30 minutes. Now, that definition changed a few years ago, and now we consider every seizure lasting more than five minutes as status epilepticus. We know that after five minutes, the probability of a seizure to stop on its own decreases dramatically. That's why we use the five-minute mark.
0: Right. So someone who comes in with uh, recurrent febrile seizures would therefore not be included uh, in the diagnosis of epilepsy. Am I correct? That's correct. Oh, yeah So that, that's, a, that's a provoking uh, incident, right? That's correct. Okay. And do we consider epilepsy a lifelong condition, And beyond that, are there favorable forms um, if it is something that persists with patients their entire lifetime? So
1: epilepsy is a big umbrella, and uh, within the definition of epilepsy, there are benign syndromes like childhood absence epilepsy or benign Rolandic epilepsy or other childhood epilepsy uh, syndromes that are self-limited, meaning... Uh, patients outgrow them by certain age. On the other hand, there are other types of epilepsy like localization-related epilepsy or uh, focal epilepsies due to uh, brain malformation that are considered lifelong.
0: So when you're dealing with a patient who has epilepsy, is there ever a point when you can say, that this condition has resolved, and what are the factors at play when making that decision?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, when we treat patients with epilepsy, and and they remain seizure free for two years on medication, we consider con- those patients in remission. Um, and after two years of seizure freedom. The patient is eligible for a trial of the medications to see if the patient has outgrown um, their epilepsy.
0: Can you give me um, any anecdotal data as far as to how frequent that occurs in a, in, a, in a pediatric patient who is diagnosed with epilepsy, treated with anti-epileptic drugs, has you know no recurrence for two years on those drugs? I mean, what what is your experience with this? Is it frequent that people outgrow these disorders?
1: It's the minority. Um, It is limited to certain genetic epilepsies that are, uh, as I mentioned, present during certain times uh, uh, during childhood. Um, For instance, childhood absence epilepsy. Now, um, if you take all the patients with epilepsy as a group, uh, a minority 20, 30% of patients will outgrow their epilepsy. But now, if you take children with benign types of epilepsy, like childhood absence epilepsy or Rolandic epilepsy, up to 80, 85% of those patients will outgrow their epilepsy.
0: Is there an age category in the pediatric population that tends to have more complications, worse outcomes um, when speaking about epilepsy and its consequences?
1: Definitely the neonates are um, at risk, uh, Um, And I think they are the population that we worry about the most. Now, um, epilepsy that starts at four or five years of age um, in a normal child, usually those children have some kind of genetic form of epilepsy that tends to be more benign. And those children are uh, the ones that perhaps have the greatest chance to outgrow it.
0: What I'm hearing from you is that infantile, neonatal, we're more concerned, more complications. This is a higher risk patient versus, you know, a little bit later on past toddlerhood, you know, five to six years old, but these patients may have longer term consequences of their epilepsy.
1: Yes, that's correct.
0: So I thought it would be helpful for our listeners to go through a case. And so there are obviously many ways in which um, seizures can present. There are many ways um, in which a patient with a known history of seizures can later be found with the diagnosis of epilepsy upon recurrence. So this is just going to be one example, Um, but I'll go ahead and start with this case and we can go from there and discuss some of the, the protocols and the Um, interventions that we should be thinking about in the emergency department. So here's the case. A previously healthy six-year-old right-handed boy is brought into the emergency department by his mother who appears distressed and very anxious. She reports that about 10 minutes ago they were at the park when the boy suddenly collapsed to the ground and became unresponsive. His arms and legs were jerking, his head was turned to the side, and he was frothing from the mouth. After about 50 seconds, Movement stopped, and he regained consciousness, but was very confused. Knowing the hospital was very close, she got him in the car and brought him to the ED right away. The boy is currently not having a seizure, but is uh, groggy and disoriented. On further questioning, it is clear that the child has never had a fit prior to this, and this has occurred completely out of the blue. He has been well with no recent illnesses. You begin to examine him. You notice his eyes suddenly deviate to the left, and moments later, he is again having a convulsion. This continues unabated for several minutes. So, can you go over, first off, the differential, um, and then we'll get into kind of the discussion about the the protocol for managing this patient. So, we'll start with the differential.
1: Sure. Um, So... Just right off the bat, uh, a six-year-old, previously healthy child who all of a sudden has a seizure. Um, the first thing that should come to mind is trauma. Um, so the, the first, um, thing we need to rule out is any history of trauma. Now, for the emergency care physician, um, unfortunately, there are cases of abusive trauma and patients' parents might not be forthcoming about the history of trauma. So just because the patient's parents don't report any history of trauma doesn't mean that trauma is ruled out. And that's uh, that's an, an important peril uh, to, to keep in mind when taking history um, in these patients. Now, um, if there is no history of trauma... Um, the the next thing that physicians should take in consideration is: Are there any focal neurological deficits, uh, weakness on one side, or uh, facial weakness, or any kind of aphasia, or anything like that? If those, if there is any focality to the neuro exam, um, then you have to start thinking about a structural uh, problem. Brain tumors, arteriovenous malformations, stroke, and also this is important for the emergency care, uh, for the aspiring emergency care physician. Keep in mind that pediatric stroke happens and is, is a true entity. And children six, seven, eight years old can actually present with acute ischemic strokes just like adults. So, stroke should be kept in mind. And then, as I mentioned, abusive head trauma with. Uh, you know, when the parents didn't disclose the history. Now, another important factor is the presence of fever. If there is fever um, uh, on initial vital sign examination, then you need to start thinking about uh, meningitis, encephalitis, herpes, or other infections. If there are no fever, if there is no fever, sorry, um, then you move... Uh, down the list to electrolyte abnormalities. There are four main electrolyte abnormalities that uh, you should uh, keep in mind when evaluating somebody with a seizure. Hypoglycemia, hyponatremia, hypocalcemia, and hypomagnesemia. All those can cause uh, seizures. But of those, this is another pearl, hypoglycemia is the most common. So always check a bedside glucose. If you are going to pick one test to do, do a glucose test. If electrolytes are all normal, you have to ask yourself, uh, was there any drug exposure, any ingestion? So, you know, toxic causes. um, So uh, obtaining a urine tox uh, might be indicated in these cases. Um, And then... It doesn't apply to this particular case, but in other cases, when evaluating somebody with a new onset seizure, if you have an infant or a toddler, you need to keep thinking about inborn errors of metabolism um, or abusive head trauma um, or genetic types of epilepsy. This child, six years old, he's a little old for that, but uh, in younger kids, you have to keep that in mind for sure.
0: Great, so what I'm hearing is we're, we're definitely ruling out trauma first and thinking about the non-accidental forms. Um, we're looking for focal findings and then kind of basing or taking our workflow uh, in different directions based upon that. Uh, never forget that pediatric population does have strokes. Um, fever um, as well as hypoglycemia can be uh, important and frequent causes. What what sugar level um, would indicate that this patient is actually um, having a seizure based upon hypoglycemia? Yeah, it,
1: that um, that's a hard question. I, I don't think there is a a, a general cutoff, but um, patients with inborn errors of metabolism can present with sugars as low as twenty uh, and 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 lower. So um, uh, it it can get pretty low, but I don't I don't think there is a a hard uh, Cutoff for this, okay. uh, whereas um, with sodium, um, a sodium less than one hundred and twenty uh, will will give you seizures. So that's that's something that you know ninety nine percent of the times, if you have a sodium of less than one twenty, that's the cause of the seizures.
0: And a history of being altered prior to the event, yeah, probably for sure. Okay. All right, so that is a great way to kind of think about our differential and a workflow to kind of follow when you have a patient coming in with their either unprovoked or undiagnosed cause of seizure. So for this patient in the case, uh, they've just presented after a seizure event, and they're back in the emergency department, and they go back into a seizure. Um, for, the, for this case, we'll just assume it was greater than five minutes and you're making the diagnosis of status epilepticus. Um, what is the protocol for managing this patient?
1: Yeah, so um, the way we as neurologists think about status epilepticus is different from uh, the way an emergency care physician thinks about status epilepticus. When an emergency care physician treats a patient with status epilepticus, the emphasis has to be placed first on general ABCs. Um, things that your neurology colleagues are not going to think about, but you have to think about, are um, establishing an IV access, for instance. It's very important. Um, you're going to have to either put an IV or if... Sometimes it's very hard because uh, patients are seizing, they're shaking. And, uh, if you don't get good IV access, get an intraosseous line um, at least. Um, providing oxygen via face mask uh, and Uh, instituting uh, continuous pulse oximetry, all all those things must be done sort of as the patient is being evaluated. Then um, when, you know, when the patient is stabilized and uh, an IV access has been established, then you can start thinking about what medications are you going to use. And always, the first medication that must come to mind is a benzodiazepine. First-line treatment for status epilepticus in children and in adults. There's great evidence for that. Uh, So there's no doubt that the first line of treatment should be a benzodiazepine in any seizure lasting more than five minutes. Now, benzodiazepines uh, come in different flavors. The most used ones are diazepam, midazolam, Midazolam also uh, in infusion, and lorazepam or adivan. So um, of those, I think diazepam or um, the, the commercial rectal form is called diastat, and lorazepam or adivan are the most used ones because they have the quickest uh, onset of action um they can be given uh so, so um diazepam can be given orally rectally uh or iv even can be given also um uh, through the iv so the first uh line of treatment is always a benzodiazepine now remember the the most important thing when you are treating a patient with a seizure or a prolonged seizure is to look at your clock because timing is going to guide your treatment and how long you wait. it is very common to see folks with uh, less experience treating seizures to get anxious and start giving medications too soon and uh, over sedating the patient and then needing to intubate the patient so if the patient has been seizing for five minutes then it's time for to administer the first round of a benzodiazepam, uh, sorry, benzodiazepine, um, adivan, diazepam, etc. Then you wait five minutes. If the patient is seizing at 10 minutes, then you give your second dose of a benzodiazepine. So now it's been 10 minutes and the patient is still seizing. Um, now it's time probably the to use a second-line medication. And second-line medications are Phosphonitoin, Keppra, Phenobarbital, or Valproic Acid. Now, in children, Phosphonitoin, Levithoracetam, or Keppra, and Phenobarbital in the little ones are the preferred drugs. Valproic Acid is less less used in in the pediatric population. There is a reason for that, and that is that if the patient has a metabolic disorder, the use of valproic acid can precipitate liver failure. So try to stay away from valproic acid. That's another pearl of wisdom. <laughs> um, so um, toin, kepra, and phenobarbital uh, at 10 minutes. Now, if the first round of uh, second-line medication doesn't work, then you can, after 15 minutes, give a second round of phosphany or kepra or phenobarbital. So then, um, let's say you gave, you've given your benzodiazepine, patients keep seizing, you've given your first, uh, round of phosphenytoin or kepra, the patient's still seizing, you've given your second round of phosphenitoin or kepra, the patient is still seizing. It's been now 20 minutes and the patient has not stopped and your medis- medications don't seem to be working. Now, at, the 20th to 30th minute mark, it's time to start what's called a fourth-line uh, treatment, and that includes an IV infusion. Hopefully, by then, you will have IV access. And IV infusions are, in pediatrics usually, uh, pendobarbital at 5 to 10 milligrams per kilo bolus, followed by 0.2 to 0.4 milligrams per kilo per minute uh, rate, or uh, midazolam, versed at 1 to 200 micrograms per kilogram bolus, and then 100 micrograms per kilo per hour. Um, in adults, you can also use propofol. And uh, we tend to avoid the use of propofol in children because of propofol infusion syndrome, which is um severe metabolic acidosis, rhabdomyolysis, and cardiac failure that happens immediately after the infusion of propofol in children. And it's a life-threatening condition. And for that particular reason, propofol tends to be avoided in the pediatric population, although you will see it very commonly used in smaller emergency rooms that manage both adult and pediatrics. So that would be your fourth line of, of treatment. And by then, um, hopefully, the pediatric ICU has been notified and the patient is either transferred to the ICU or waiting for transfer. Your job at that point is to make sure that the patient's airway is secure. When you start a continuous infusion, um, you might need to intubate the patient to secure the airway. Uh, You need to make sure that the blood pressure is adequately managed and the patient is oxygenating well. Um, That basically summarizes the treatment of status epilepticus, both in adults and kids.
0: Yeah, that was very thorough. I appreciate that. I'm glad that you touched on um, the use of induction agents. And as you have mentioned, I know that propofol can be Oh, I'm on my fourth line here. I'm just going to give propofol. I think it's very important to recognize that that is not a safe agent to use in pediatric populations, at least uh, for the most part. Um, so if you're at that fourth line, maybe you don't have access to other, like the pentobarb. Would you consider something such as ketamine and etomidate? Are those induction agents worthwhile as far as stopping a patient in status epilepticus?
1: I think those are, um, have been less studied and, uh, they're less favored, um, at, at this point. Probably I would not consider them as, as options. I would try to get, uh, if, if I was pressured to give the patient a continuous infusion, my first, um, option is always Versed, midazolam and um i have experience with it uh it works quite well uh rapid onset of uh action and um controls most of the seizures second line would be pentobarbital and usually that is available pretty much everywhere if you need to stop the seizures and all you have is propofol you you will have to use it it's okay um probably at that point you are arranging for transfer to a pediatric ICU or somewhere else. And what would happen is as the patient arrives, um, we will switch him from Propofol to another agent just to avoid the Propofol infusion syndrome. Uh, Ketamine, I I have, in my years, I have not seen it used very frequently, no.
0: Okay. Um, Any other lab studies that should be obtained during this time? Um, If we've just given, you know, up to a fourth line agent, are we worried about um, are we worried about drug levels? Would you be ordering those to be checked, and um, are there other labs that are just one hundred percent have to be done? We have to be checking these
1: well i I think that um, as I mentioned the the most important lab to check is glucose um, electrolytes are very important, particularly, uh, sodium, calcium, uh, magnesium. Now, there is, uh, something that needs to be remembered, uh, and that is when is it appropriate to tap a patient with status epilepticus? Um, I think that any patient with prolonged seizures, status epilepticus, and fever deserves an emergent lumbar puncture to look for infectious causes that should be treated immediately. Um, are you
0: paralyzing those patients? Are you are you using a paralytic agent in that case? I mean
1: um, well, that's a, that's a great question. I think that everything has happened sort of at, at the same time, and your emphasis is you're working simultaneously on treating the seizures and co- controlling the seizures and tapping the patient. Uh, so those things almost go like in parallel.
0: Yeah, I'm just kind of imagining here I have a patient status that is, is persistent. Now I'm thinking, well, I may need to intubate this patient. I also need to get a tap, but they have tonic, mm-hmm. tonic reactions and, and muscle jerking everywhere. How do I actually work this scenario out? Because if I'm intubating, it's going to be difficult to turn someone especially for a sterile procedure such as a lumbar puncture.
1: Yeah, I think that airway comes first, though, as usual. And the sequence of events would be uh, intubation and controlling the seizures and then lumbar puncture in that order.
0: Right. Makes sense.
1: Now, you mentioned drug levels. Uh, Yes. In any patient with a history of epilepsy who is on medications, you should consider getting drug levels now the newer an, uh, anticonvulsant agents have a wide range of therapeutic uh levels in in those cases getting levels is less uh, useful i'll give you some examples keppra topiramate zonisamide lacosamide all those medications honestly obtaining levels is um, not going to be very useful First of all they are sometimes there are send outs so it's going to take days to to get the labs back and even with a uh the, the level available within hours the level the therapeutic level is so wide that you you basically can't go by levels the older agents valproic acid phenobarbital carbamazepine those in, in those situations it is um useful to obtain drug levels, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, no, that does make sense. Another kind of question uh, on our escalation of drugs used in status epilepticus would be, we're always starting with benzodiazepines. Um, Our second line is often phosphonatoid or Keppra. Why isn't that we don't start with the typical anticonvulsants um, is it, we just know the efficacy is better, or...?
1: Yes, the the, the onset of action is, is better with benzodiazepines. Uh, it's uh, basically three to five minutes for Adivan and diazepam versus way longer with Kepra.
0: And we think that both have the same efficacy. If we were to say, hey, these are going to have the same onset, has something like this been studied before...?
1: Yeah, not systematically, but we, we do know that the the only medications that have been studied uh systematically uh head to head have been uh benzodiazepines and barbiturates um uh in the initial uh treatment of status epilepticus and benzodiazepines are certainly quicker to take effect. So yeah, that's what yeah. we want, right? Yeah. yeah.
0: Here, this is probably my favorite question uh, that we had kind of discussed beforehand, but what are the indications for STAT EEG in the emergency department?
1: Yeah, so that's um, my area of research. Uh, And as you know, obtaining an EEG in the emergency department is very difficult. There are several barriers to obtaining an EEG, including the availability of a technician, uh, placement of the electrodes. It's a procedure that um, takes about 40 minutes. Um, And then availability of an EEG reader to read and interpret those results. So for for all those reasons, EEG has not been done routinely in the emergency room up to now. Um, In the next five to ten years, we will see a dramatic change in that practice. By the time you finish your residency and most of the listeners finish their residency, I think that the use of EEG will be routine in the emergency department. There is There are new technologies available, new EEG devices that can be easily applied. Um, basically, they have worked the um the issues with uh, electrodes and impedances and things like that, um, down to the point where basically um, performing an EEG uh, is, I would say, as simple as putting a peripheral levy. to be honest.
0: So so are these are these like helmets or Are they are Yeah,
1: these... there so there are several models. There are, some of them are headbands that have electrodes attached to them and some of them are caps that can easily be deployed. Um some of them are uh, have dry electrodes with no gel. Some others have gels that are is superconductive um and that is used to uh pick up EEG signals. Um the the number of different EEG devices is exploding basically. And um I, I think that the technology is becoming more and more available. Now there are some new devices that provide with um uh, a first read, if you will, of the EEG. So the the emergency physician um doesn't have to go through the raw data. And can look at a spectral analysis with different colors and say, "Well, you know, I worried this might be a seizure, this might be birth suppression or or any pattern that is um, worrisome basically
0: the ability to accurately interpret EEGs is years and years of training to my for my understanding i mean that's that's something that we can't really expect in an an emergency physician to be good at unless they've been through extensive training. Is that correct?
1: Yes. However, um, the emergency care physician needs to be aware of a few patterns of EEG that are very distinct and that they, and that are very, that that will actually change your management. The first one is a seizure basically. Um, and when you look at a raw EEG, um, A seizure has a very distinctive pattern that basically looks like you're looking at an EKG, spikes, waves, things like that. Another one is burst suppression, which is a burst of activity separated by periods of flat EEG. Um, Then the the other one would be a normal EEG. And then the last one would be there is an asymmetric EEG, meaning the left side is different from the right side. Those four patterns, I think, will change your management, and they're quite easy to interpret uh, without getting into the nitty-gritty of localizing a seizure, where is it coming from, et cetera. So I think that I am confident that in, in the future, emergency care physicians will be performing eegs and hopefully interpreting those eegs and and changing their management there is already a lot of literature on that in uh in the emergency medicine um, journals
0: great so we can expect not only training in ekg reading but also eeg reading once this is more easily yeah (laughs) or more easily performed in the emergency department okay all right. Well, so since this is um, a podcast, an emergency medicine podcast directed towards medical students and maybe early residents, um, or even, you know, pre med, uh, I think what would be helpful is to discuss what medical students can do um, when a patient presents in status epilepticus. What is this medical student's role?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think the medical student uh can be very useful uh in, in these situations and in any other emergency situation. Um don't forget the attendings and fellows and residents are gonna be rushing to try to stabilize the patient. Um and they will have little to no time to talk to the parents and obtain an accurate uh history. So uh the medical student can actually take his or her time to go over exposures past medical history, medications, uh, family history of any genetic disorder, family history of epilepsy or any other learning disabilities, developmental delay, things like that, and get a very thorough history that will be very important in determining the cause of the epilepsy. Sometimes, oftentimes, uh, I find that medical students provide the most detailed history. Um, another thing... Um, that you should be doing as a medical student is try to get your hands on uh, as much as possible during the neurological assessment. Do neurological examinations, get comfortable with the neuro exam, try to pick up any focal findings, subtleties uh, of the neuro exam. That will help you a lot.
0: Right. So that's, I think you've brought up a great point and one I'm, I'm certainly listening to now. Uh, so when most students are running into the trauma bay to watch the action, the true gunner is turning around and talking to the family and getting the history as, as accurately as possible. That's really where the win is, and that's where you can be most helpful.
1: Yes. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Um, So still speaking about the medical student role, um, what are some common pimp questions to look out for while on our clinical rotations?
1: Yeah, so when you're presenting a patient with a seizure, always um, the semiology has to be very clear. So what happened preceding the seizure, during the seizure, and after a seizure? If there was any kind of focal Um, asymmetry or finding you need to make sure that you know if it was right or left your attending will ask you that if there was eye deviation was it to the right or to the left or is it unknown if the parents don't know that's okay but you at least have to ask and make sure that um, you get that uh, information Um, so seizure semiology that's very important Another important question that you will be asked is about preservation of consciousness during a seizure. Was the patient conscious? Was the patient able to answer questions? Did did they seem groggy? Or was was the patient completely out? And that's a very important question because that helps us differentiate focal versus generalized seizures. If you are going to present a patient with a febrile seizure, Know the difference between simple febrile seizures and complex febrile seizures. So just to review that, complex febrile seizures are are any seizure that is either focal or uh, lasts more than 15 minutes, or if you have two seizures, two febrile seizures in less than 24 hours, that makes it a complex febrile seizure. Those patients tend to have a slightly higher risk for developing uh, epilepsy later on in life. Very, very, uh, very uh, minor, but still important. And then uh, I guess the last question, the the ultimate PIM question uh, is, which anti-epileptic medication are you going to use? Or I should say, anti-convulsant medication, uh, are you gonna choose? And the short answer is, uh, in this day and age, always choose Keppra. Some of my neurology colleagues might disagree with this, but you're going to be right 80% of the times. There are some exceptions, like some infantile forms of epilepsy, like Lennox-Gastaut or Absence epilepsy that, you know, you need to choose uh, ethosuximide. But Keppra is a great medication. It gives you broad coverage. It can be given IV, PO. You don't have to check levels. So it's a great first choice for any type of epilepsy.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, certainly uh, when I've been asked on the wards, that is the one I've always chosen. um, And I have been right pretty much every time, (laughs) luckily for me. Um, So let's see. One last question. uh, And I guess we're going to end on kind of a a down point. But, um, you know, can status epilepticus lead to a patient's death?
1: Um, So, Yes. Um, Now, the mortality of status epilepticus has dramatically decreased over the last two, three decades due to um, the uh, modern emergency medicine and pediatric ICU care. Um, In studies from the 60s and early 70s, mortality was in the, you know, 15, 20%. Now it's down to zero to 3%. Um, patients who um, patients who are at higher risk for mortality um, during status epilepticus are those with intractable epilepsy, who have um, genetic disorders, uh, who are on many medications, and those who cease for very long uh, periods of time. And the causes of death are often electrolyte abnormalities or cardiac instability, basically due to the excessive use of medication. Um, But I would say that um, overall, um, status epilepticus is, uh, if if managed well, uh, can be controlled, and we have been doing much better than 20, 30 years ago.
0: That's all we have for today, and I want to take this opportunity to extend a big thanks to my guest. As a reminder, you have been listening to Dr. Juan Pientino. He is the Director of Inpatient Pediatric Neurology and the Co-Director of Pediatric Neurocritical Care at Dornbecker Children's Hospital here in Portland. As we sign off, I want to give credit to some of the artists whose music has been featured on today's episode. I would like to thank Alex Salci, who composed and produced the new eMigCast theme music, As this is our 50th episode, it works as a reminder of where this project first started and signifies our continued efforts moving forward. We are always recruiting new students, so if you're interested in getting involved with the podcast, please send us an email. Our address is available at eMakeCast.com. In the background now is a track called Rhapsody in Grey from the Data Driven DJ Project by Brian Fu. The music was created directly from EEG waveforms of an anonymous 11-year-old female patient just before, throughout, and after a seizure event. The producer applied algorithms to interpret the amplitude, frequency, and synchrony of the waveforms with brief vocal tracks as the output. In essence, this is the song of a seizure. Additional details and a link to this project are available on our website. Thanks again for joining us. See you next time on eMigCast.